morning, bro. Good morning. How you doing? I'm, I'm tired, to be honest. Um, I'm, I'm very, very tired. Uh, home renovations has meant there's been very little sleep recently, but I feel good. It's uh, my wife's vision is is coming into play. Amazing. So got to be pleased. Got to be pleased. How are you? I'm also tired. It's uh, been a tough weekend it hasn't been particularly relaxing i've been doing some house stuff uh, moving things around getting it ready for for christmas and for for future guests um still need to get a dining table um also just yeah. doing work as well um spent most of my saturday evening working um but i'm all right um i was thinking you know we've the common denominator between the two of us right now is the fact that we're both tired and I was thinking are we doing a disservice to our listeners by recording an episode tired um, and then I thought you know what most of the time the people listening to this are going to be listening to to this during their own grind whether they're on their way to work on their way back from work they're starting their morning with us in order to to help them get out of bed who knows um, yeah and yeah as a result i think there's almost a little bit of support mutual camaraderie with the people listening you know we're tired you're tired but we're still grinding together it's the reality it's the reality that this life can be extremely challenging but it's important that we actually persevere it's funny i had an experience which you shared with me offline this week where i went back to the gym for the first time in five weeks and <laughs> it took me 20 minutes to get dressed literally 20 minutes to actually <laughs> get ready sorry bro yeah the, the kids have found me yeah that's all right no problem hi everyone uh, i was really tempted to keep in the audio of afalabi fighting a battle with his one-year-old for supremacy in the house Spoiler alert, he lost. Um, but I decided to be nice and remove it. Afalabi had to retreat and find a nice quiet place to hide so that he could record the rest of this podcast. So we are going to join the action back where he's found a nice quiet place to continue. So without further delay, we're back in the room. Yeah, what fascinated me was how once you've almost fallen off the wagon, which was me in terms of gym, due to lockdown and not going for five or six weeks. When you jump back on again, it can feel traumatizing. It, it, it takes such a long time <laughs> to get back to where you once were. I was literally, it took me 20 minutes to get dressed, to start. And I thought, am, am, I, am I failing here? Then I had to forgive myself for not being perfect and saying, actually, this is what happens when you just are out of the game for a while. Mm-hmm. You're just not match fit. Um, and completely gone off on a tangent they started playing some track by Sean Paul which I had no idea what it was was. but I thought to myself hold on I was listening to Sean Paul when I was 13 (laughs) that was that was 16, 17 years ago like this guy is still consistent and you know I can't help but try to pull out lessons from everything yeah one Forgive yourself for not being perfect. You haven't gone to gym for a while. It's going to take you a while to get back on track. But two, 
how do you reinvent yourself constantly to remain current as a a practitioner, as a professional, as an entrepreneur? Because I look at someone like Sean Paul and he is there like he's still a new kid in the block. And we can all think of someone who's just disappeared. Now, I don't listen it's, to music like that, but it, it just impresses me. It's incredible sometimes the synergy in our thinking because that has been a question on my mind for about the last two weeks now. And I've been wondering how best to, to approach that potentially for a podcast episode. We'll speak about that offline because I think it's a very interesting discussion, one that I'm going to need to do some research on. Mm. Mm. Um, but as always, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Expensive Lessons. We are happy to have you here. We are excited to have you here listening to us. And we've got a very special episode for you today. This is a podcast where company directors share the lessons that they've learned on their entrepreneurial journey. Uh, but unlike normal episodes, this episode is going to see us go even further back in our journey, even before the entrepreneur entrepreneurial ambition was implanted. Today we're going to spend some time looking at one of the co-hosts and looking at his journey pretty much from early years up into where we are now. And the way we're going to, to capture this with Afalabi is to, to actually ask him about where he's lived. So Afalabi has a very interesting background and if you're okay, I think we're just going to dive into it. Let's go for it. Let's so, for it. my first question is, where were you born? So, I was born in Ellsbury, Buckinghamshire, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm, like the kids I work with think I'm posh. Because um, <laughs> they don't know where that is. But um, <laughs> Ellsbury um, is in Buckinghamshire, Shire, uh, which is not too far from London. You can get there within a couple hours. And it was pure coincidence, me being born there. Um, it occurred due to an incident with my uncle. So um, at the time, um, prior to my birth, my mother was quite well established in dealing with imports and exports. So she used to travel between um, Switzerland and other parts of Europe to Niger and back to Nigeria, um, transporting lace, transporting gold, at a time where the currency was almost identical and she did well she did extremely well however unfortunately um her younger brother i believe younger brother got into a car accident um company car he wasn't meant to be working on that day and uh, a friend of his asked him to cover his shift he said yes he got into the car and there was a major collision major incident in nigeria which actually led to him being in a coma um, for a prolonged period of time. Now, unfortunately, due to poor medical standards, he wasn't tended to effectively enough when he was in that coma, and he was just left to lie still. Now, if you remain in the same position for a significant amount of time, um, scientists help me here, but things start to occur which shouldn't occur. And when he came to, he was paralyzed from the waist down, to which, my mum being uh, the almost economic pillar within her family said, okay, let's, let's take him to the UK for medical treatment. And that's how I was born here. Um, all my other siblings were born in Nigeria, but I was born here simply because she wanted to 
take advantage of the, the medical um, expertise in this country. Wow, and that's an interesting journey and an interesting uh, route into kind of how you how you began, how you started, and people might argue that you know it's a lot of kind of random events all occurring together to get you to where you you began. But I want to ask you from your perspective. How do you see your origin story as as occurring in your life? Do you see it as something which was as as I as I said a collection of random events, or do you see something a little bit more divine uh, happening there to allow you to to begin where you are? Do you know, when when thinking about this, I thought, should I do this chronologically, or should I do this looking back? Um, Quoting Steve Jobs, oftentimes we can only make sense of it looking back. And I think looking back, I will say there's a lot of almost divine intervention in many respects. However, what what stands out to me is the, the, the rise and fall in terms of my mother's economic situation and how that's impacted all of us. So this is a woman who was doing extremely well, um, who had visited the UK prior at a time when in places like Buckinghamshire, you could have bought a house for 30 grand. And she opted not to. Um, she opted not to buy a couple of these houses because no one ever thought that houses would um, multiply by 10 in terms of value. Mm. It just wasn't essential. However, changes of circumstances led to this woman who was doing rather well in her life, then falling into economic deprivation leading to her actually relying on other people, complete strangers, to help her out, to help out her family, to help out her kids. This culminated in the children actually being separated and being taken care of by different families in actually different places. Um, You had myself being attached to her purely because I was a baby. You had three of my older siblings being with a, a wonderful Caribbean family who um, the, the dad was a deacon, the mother was an extremely loving woman and they took care of them. So that's a, an interesting conundrum there, like West Africans being brought up in a, a Jamaican household where it's, it's highly religious. You had my, my oldest brother who was uh, just trying to do his own impression of Dennis the Menace and just running around doing whatever he could. And then we grew up in that. We, we grew up in the idea of, okay, mum's not here. Um, I was with her for, let's say, the first six to seven years. But then I grew up with that experience of her not being here as well. And depending upon who you speak to, it differs. Some people feel as if I got the worst deal because I have no real experiences or memories of living with her, whilst the others did. Or, or, or vice versa. Is it better to have known and for that to have been stripped away or not to have known at all. Mm. So can I ask you, what what was your earliest memory? My earliest memory is actually in... It, it fluctuates. It fluctuates between being in Peckham and I think being in Ellsbury. Um, there's one in Ellsbury where I was playing a game with a boy 
on on like on a, on a street where I think their objective was to throw the ball to hit the curb and bounce back. Now it fluctuates between that and waiting by a school gate, and I must have been maybe five or so in a primary school in Peckham. I think I went to like four different primary schools, but the, one of them was in Peckham. I just remember by, waiting by a school gate for a woman who was meant to collect me, who wasn't mum. I just remember waiting for like a prolonged period of time. And this is going to be a, a slightly odd question, but when you were younger, at this age, how do you remember feeling? Now, the reason why I ask that question is because some people look back at their childhood and all they can feel is a sense of joy, carefree, happiness. Others look back with dread or concern or fear. Some people look at it with a, period, you know, with a, with a feeling of mystery and not being able to understand. When you think about that age, how do you remember feeling? I remember... It's, in, it's incredible. So my siblings did a great deal, particularly my older sister, did a great deal to try to offer me what might resemble a normal childhood. But I knew very early on that I did not have a normal childhood. And mm. I was very quiet as a result because I knew that things could change at any point. And I knew that I was in a disadvantaged position. So at any point, I could be victimized at any point. Mm. So it, it, unfortunately, it doesn't fill me with a great deal of joy. There were, there were moments of it throughout when I was with family, but because the vast majority of it was where I wasn't with family and unfortunately, in the early years with people who weren't that loving, um, it, it just wasn't the most pleasant experience. Understood. And I think with that, I'd like to hear a little bit more about Peckham. So a Buckinghamshire boy finds his way into Peckham. What age did you move to Peckham? So that was at the age of 10. So okay. before I go to Peckham, I've got to speak about Redbridge Ilford. How Talk we to got me. to Redbridge Ilford, I've got no idea. But I remember living in four different places in Redbridge um, before the age of nine. And I was fortunate. I was very fortunate because there was a family who took us in, or I think me, my older sister, and my older brother in, when I was around six. And I say fortunate because it was a family of academics. The, the mother was a lawyer, the father was a doctor. Um, unfortunately, he passed a couple of years ago. His daughter has become a lawyer. So she was exactly three, um, she thought to become a doctor, sorry. She was exactly three months older than me. His son has become um, an Olympian. So he actually ran for Great Britain. He got a silver medal during the Paralympics, 100 meters. It was a phenomenal environment because prior to that, I, I couldn't remember consistency. And it, ironically, I, I feel consistency when I think about them, even though I was probably only with them for maybe two to three years, but it was a family home. I saw what a loving family could look like. I saw how they'll play games together. I saw how there'll be like a meal road. I saw how parents' evening meant something. I saw how the dad had aspirations for his kids and would ensure that they were tutored. I saw how he identified at the age of six or seven 
that I couldn't recite my alphabet straight through. I remember my sister was working with me with that. Like I would go to the toilet whenever it got to LMNOP, just couldn't do it. I'd hide in the <laughs> toilet for what felt like days, but it was probably maybe 10 minutes. And V was just an issue in my life. Um, he, they challenged that. And it took me from being that child who was taken out of lessons, so Camelot Primary School in Ilford, to get additional support and not even realising I was getting additional support to going to Peckham and being branded as gifted and talented. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about education because I've seen firsthand the impact it can have when someone is intentional. I literally remember the day when another pupil, I must have been seven, was taken out of the class instead of I was by the teaching assistant and he burst into tears. And it was in that moment that I realized, oh, so this isn't a good thing. <laughs> because I wasn't being taken out anymore. And I didn't realize I was being taken out because I was slower than the other kids and I needed additional help. And that was all because that family said, okay, when you come home, you do your homework first. Okay, and when you do your homework, you do this as well. There was just standards. And that's manifested in the success of their children. But it meant that when I did go to Peckham, I was in a different cognitive space. Now that, that shift to Peckham was um, another interesting one because it, it led me to live with a woman who had very little, but had a huge heart. And the story goes that my mum met her in Dorsley Market. Um, my mum's been through very desperate times. So I'm, I'm now 10 years old. She's going back and forth every year or so now, every two years or so. She will stay in the UK for two weeks, go back for a period of time. Why, I'm not too sure. But she meets this woman in Dorset Market um, in North London. And just through one of her previous contacts that she used to do business with, she tells this story about how she's got this child who's nine slash ten years old and she's got to go back to Nigeria. And she needs somewhere for him to stay. All of our other children are older. They're like college, uni age. They're kind of living together, taking care of themselves. But she wants this boy to stay here. And this woman who's gone to Dawson Market to get some spinach, you know, some dry fish, picks up a child. And I remember going to her bedsit in Peckham with my mum. And we waited there. The woman allowed us into the corridor. It was one of those old Victorian three-story houses which had been converted into potentially three or four different bedsits. And we waited in the corridor for hours, sitting on the suitcase which had all of my belongings. But she wasn't there. So we left the suitcase there, potentially went back to wherever was home, which I can't remember, for me to go back there another time. And... You've got to imagine, I, I, I was leaving Ilford. I was leaving that home, that family unit, which I'd grown to love, which I'd almost adopted, to join this woman who had a bathroom, a kitchen, and a living space, which had a bed and a sofa in Peckham. And this was now going to be my new home. <laughs> There's so much to, to delve into that. I think the first thing I want to say is, why, why is it such an uncommon story in the West African cult, cult, culture 
that somebody can literally just say, I need someone to look after my child and someone will just volunteer. I'll do it. Whether they have a little or a lot, that was the same story as me. There's clearly something about our culture which means that we can't say no to something like that. Um, and I, I look back at when, times when I've spent considerable amount of time in Nigeria and how everybody in your vicinity is a family member, yep. whether they're blood-related or not. Um, and you, you, you take time, you make the effort to ask questions like, have you eaten? Have you got a place to sleep? You don't assume anything um and if anything if anything goes without um so if anyone goes without then then you help them you provide for them the last time sorry the first time i i stayed in nigeria my biological mum had just a guy sleeping in the living room mm. um he wasn't he wasn't related he was just in need of a place to stay and I think that hospitality that's provided is incredibly valuable. Um, I do have a question for you. So you've talked me through various disparate childhood experiences. Experiences that uh, somebody who had a stable family household wouldn't be able to to compare and contrast and with that and seeing some of the outcomes as a result of these different upbringings are you able to distill lessons around how best or how to effectively support a child in their early years do you mm. have any do you have any insight as to what actually is important and what's yeah. what's nice to have? What's nice to have is a consistent roof over your head, consistent meals, um, and hot water. Now, Maslow's hierarchy of needs will suggest that they're essential, um, but I would say that they're potentially nice to have. What is essential for a child is affirmation, and excessive amounts of love, them knowing that they are loved. I remember I repressed a place I lived in Peckham. So that woman, Trafalgar Avenue, um, at age of 10, wasn't the first place I lived in Peckham. It wasn't even that's the second. Um, but the sec when I left Redbridge, I actually went to another woman who lived in Burden Bush Road, Camelot, just off Oakham Road. And she was horrid. So I was there for year five and year six, and she was absolutely horrid. Um, and I've, I've completely repressed that. I just, it came back to me now. But what I needed and what all children need is consistency in love. So I've, I've joked in the past that I'm, <laughs> I'm undergoing like a social experiment to tell my child that I love him every single day to see what happens, <laughs> to, just, to see what, actually what happens in the future. <laughs> um, but that's, that's what they need. Because it wasn't the poverty which hurt. It wasn't the lack of clothing or shoes. I remember at the age of six, my 
I think I forced my mum to buy me a pair of boots from like a charity shop. And I, I loved them so much, but they were too tight. And I forced it to buy it for me. And it was so tight that I got a bunion that I still have till today. Now, it wasn't the poverty which really hurt so much. It was the lack of love, her not being there consistently. And on instances, some of the people who I was with just not showing enough empathy to the fact that this is a child and mm. the fact that, okay, yeah, the child's a bit messed up a little bit, but it's kind of understandable. So if if we look at Peckham in a bit more detail, so you've finished primary school, you're now into secondary school, you're identified as as gifted, talented, and you're navigating your adolescence as a South Londoner. What event comes to mind? What what daily routine comes to mind when you think back to Peckham? So the woman who took me in at the age of 10, the woman who had very little, um, she didn't have any children. She was insistent that I learn how to cook and clean. And I'm forever grateful for that. So in the mornings I would have to hoover or sweep and do the kitchen or the bathroom before school every morning. It was just mandatory. And from the age of 10 when I was with her, if she was in the kitchen, I had to be in the kitchen. I could not be in that living room watching Formula One or watching Weakest Link. I had to be beside her watching what she was doing. And she did that intentionally so that I was equipped for adulthood when I was alone. And she used to say crazy things like, listen, if you go get a girl pregnant, that's the woman's problem. I need you to become a man who can take care of yourself. She, she would throw out these outlandish statements. But afterwards, I got her humour that what she wanted more than anything was for me to understand that my actions meant something and that I needed to be able to support myself and other people. Um, that's one which stands out. Another is just navigating Peckham. So I went to Camelot Primary School, then went to Woolworth Secondary School. And I went to secondary school with kids who were in the same class as Damon Taylor. So this is that era of Peckham where kids starting killing kids. I remember year nine, something just switched. Like there were fights, there were always fights. But from year nine, someone wasn't walking home. I remember in year seven and year eight, the two kids will be on the same bus. Screw facing, but they're on the same bus afterwards. But something just switched in year nine where you just had to be on guard. And I, I remember an instance, George, I can't remember his surname, who purely through mistaken identity wanted to stab me outside, was it Peckham Rex? Or was it um, near the library? Because he thought I was someone else. Now, George rest in peace. George died 10 years later through another gang affiliated situation. But that was just Peckham. Peckham was kids who, looking back, behaved like they were adults and unfortunately got involved in things which we were far too young and immature to really understand. 
And now looking back at this with your education hat on, seeing these teenagers who were a lot more aware and maybe prone to violence than they should have been. Do you look at these these uh, children as redeemable? Were they already set on a path to destruction and it'd be very difficult for them to um, turn left or right away from that? Or do you feel developmentally there was still an opportunity for them to have their lives transformed? They're, they're definitely redeemable. Um, the, the academy system which has come in, which has taken over whole boroughs like Southwark, has shown that they're redeemable. The same schools... So what we've got to realise, in many areas, the intake, the, the demographic doesn't change. That the kids are the same. So if in one decade the results are three times higher than they were in the previous decade with the same cohort, the same types of kids, something's been done differently in terms of leadership and expectations. And that's what's happened in Southwark. Southwark's now performing decently in terms of academic results. I remember leaving Woolworth Secondary School and I think the year after, is it 28% of the pupils got five GCSEs, excluding English and maths. I remember being put in halls where all the girls are told to go home and we were getting lectured on how important it is for us to get five GCSEs. And I look back now and I think, rah, were our standards that low? Or were mm. we that bad <laughs> that they were literally begging us to get five GCSEs? The average child is walking out now with eight, nine, 10, 11, casually. And it's, it's standards. It's a two-pronged approach. It, it can't just be the education system being attacked. Whilst it's true that standards were lower then, um, I had a drama teacher who showed us Wallace and Gromit every single lesson. <laughs> every, and it's only when you look back that you realise that there was something wrong with this situation. At the time, <laughs> I had no idea that this may have been an issue because I was just there drawing my Dragon Ball Z pictures. Like, that was a free lesson. When I looked on the timetable drama, free lesson. I remember we rioted once and <laughs> we didn't see him afterwards. Like, we literally pushed him out the door. It was that kind of environment. But for those listening, it wasn't, we weren't completely feral kids. We were just cold switched. You would go from Miss Bennett's maths class where I dare you to breathe without her say so, to another class where that teacher clearly has no understanding of how to even carry themselves, let alone speak to people. But we were inherently disrespectful because of the environment, because of our lack of parenting. There are so many kids having kids and there's so many parents who worked around the clock so their kids just roamed and did what they wanted. I remember the one boy called Joshua, he's year 10. There are certain things that kids say, which I'll never forget. He said, there are many things I cannot do because I love my mum too much. And I always remember him saying that because that for me was almost like a a, a signpost to one of the reasons why there are so many social issues in places like Peckham, Brixton, Tottenham. It's not like we didn't love our mothers, but we didn't see them often enough. They weren't mm. parenting in the way that we aspire to parent. They were offering shelter, food and water, 
essential, yes. But that's what you give to a cat and a dog. And it's it's interesting that we've come up to this point in your life. We're talking about your teenage years. And we've spoken about a lot of the women that have had an impact in your life. And in some cases, maybe foster parents, foster fathers. But we haven't spoken about your father at all. No. So, um... I spoke to him once when I was 15 and I think it was like a five minute conversation and why I think it was it was a woman who took me in at the age of 10 who I was with throughout the rest of my teens until I went to uni she wanted me to develop a relationship with him so she I think she just wanted me to develop a relationship with my parents so from the age of 10 to 20 I saw my mum maybe four times, five times possibly, um, and on each occasion for no more than a month. So when I was 10, she would get me to write letters, um, which weren't sent back. And at 15, she wanted me to reach out to my dad, so she, she called him and I spoke to him. And I remember being so vexed when he said, how are your half-brothers and sisters? And I was thinking, rude boy. I, I don't refer to them as my half-brothers and sisters. And that was the last time I've ever spoken to him. Now, there's no malice there. I think later in life, I realised that if I had anything against him and her, I literally had to forgive them for my own mental health and my own just salvation, just great development. But there's just never been a father figure, unfortunately. There have been instances of people who've tried to play that role. Many of them have failed woefully. But... It just doesn't exist. And it's interesting to hear your experiences in Wolf, especially because you describe an environment that has to overcompensate for a lack of engagement and a lack of uh, responsible parenting. And it's, it's similar to somebody who has lost a liver for instance i'm sorry a kidney or or a lung and how the other remaining organ gets larger in order to mm. to overcompensate however isn't able to to work as efficiently as if you had two and once again from your educational experience how do you see a lack of father figures effectively in the community impacting young men in particular? If I could change one thing, it would be that. I would rather have a father in every home than every home be given half a million pounds. I want that to really sink in. That for me is is the defining factor. And unfortunately, because there are so few father figures and then successful and appropriate father figures, there are many men and women who are growing up failing to understand the significance of that role. 
and unfortunately society is continuing to almost dwindle the significance of that role even though all of the research suggests that actually individuals who come from a two-parent household outperform those who don't significantly and it is generational it's, it's, it's sad because it, it was the reoccurring theme amongst all of us like all the friends I had dads were just not there and earlier when I said well there's no real father figure what came to mind immediately afterwards was that actually the, the people around me became my father figure which is the problem that the father figure who's meant to provide identity meant to provide um, discipline training meant to provide like safety and provision that role is then placed upon your peers which is why so many young men are, are drawn into almost like blood covenants and gangs because that literally becomes their brethren because mum mum's mum and mum's got her own issues and I'm now of the age where I don't really need to listen to mum and I'm going to do my own thing because I need to provide I need to get my money up right so these young men start to do things in a way that they feel is right because there's just no guidance and then that is the thing which is continuing to like to cripple many communities particularly the the black community and you are the father of two yeah how do you feel like your experiences with parenting in general, but in particular with fatherlessness, have impacted your parenting style? Intentionality, being unbelievably intentional. So I, I look at this week, for example, every night this week, I have bathed both my kids, about three-year-old and a one-year-old, uh, bathed both of them at 6.30. Um, by seven o'clock, I'm reading a couple books to them. Um, before I put them to bed. I work long hours, so but that's my time with them. I'll have an hour, an hour and a half with them where I'll, I'll feed, bathe, educate, and each of those is symbolic. Now, imagine a father doing that for five years. There is a bond which is created with those children. Those children know that there's a certain routine that daddy ends my day. Like my, my day ends when daddy has help me to wash down. My day ends when daddy's fed me. Dad, my day ends when daddy's asked me, okay, what happened in my day? I've got to recite and regurgitate the key points and facts. My day ends when daddy reads a couple of books to me and we start exploring new worlds. It seems very, very simple, but time, I, I intentionally make time for them. I intentionally speak to my son in a way which is going to develop him into a man. It's all about responsibility. No, you don't do that. No, you do do this. No, you, you don't wipe your your mouth with your arm, as I was saying to him this morning. You go and get a tissue. Like, this is what you do. No, it's not, yeah, it's, it's, it's yes, daddy. I discipline my daughter so that she understands what it's like to actually have a man in the household. So that she understands that actually males and females are different. I will I'll carry her and show her excessive amounts of love so that she knows that that's already present in her life. So she doesn't have to seek love as a teenager. 
and get gassed when someone buys her a Happy Meal. See, that could lead into a whole different discussion about the impact of fatherlessness on women, which I don't think I'm qualified to discuss, but Mm -hmm. I'm very keen to, to look into that at some point in the future. I want to move forward now because we're moving out of our period of childhood and we're moving into adulthood and you you were gifted and talented. You did well at secondary school. You then found yourself still a resident of Peckham, but a student at a college in North London. Yeah. Why did you decide to go all the way to North London for further education? The answer to that is I don't know. It, it links beautifully to fatherlessness. So I chose my sec- um, I chose my college and my university. And my college experience started with me going to college to enrol. Possibly because I had friends going there. I don't know why I picked um, City of Westminster College. No idea. There was just no rational strategic thought in it. I cannot remember why I picked it. And thus, I, I wish I had a father figure posing certain questions like, why on earth do you want to go there? So I was held accountable to someone. But I remember going there to enrol and I actually went on the wrong day. I went the day after I should have gone. And many of the subjects that I wanted to take had been filled. So I think I went there with the expectation of taking um, accounts, at that time I thought I was gonna become an accountant. Um, accounts, maths, business, maybe even economics, all things around those lines and a lot of them would have been taken. So I was there in a hall sat opposite this man pre-social distancing and he was just telling me that yep these courses are filled and we start next week what do you want to do? So I got on the phone to a friend of mine who had enrolled the day beforehand and told him what the situation was and he was like you know, I'm doing sociology and computing. You should do that too. Okay. So I asked him if sociology and computing are available. So I'm doing sociology and computing. And he goes, you know, you're good at English as well. You should do that. Is English available? Yeah. So my A-levels were picked by a friend of mine, which is ridiculous. It's, it's comical to think about, but it's, it's testament to the lack of guidance. And many people put... The, the fatherlessness down to extreme things like um, like knife crime and um, teenage pregnancy, but it goes down to the small things, the decisions that we make, which have long lasting effects. So I ended up in uh, CWC, which I, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I learned a great deal about what work actually was. Um, harking back to your testimony about the time there, we had excess amounts of time and we didn't know how, what to do with it. When I got home as a child, I, I did what I wanted to do. Remember, I'd, I'd left Redbridge, the house of the doctor and, and the lawyer, where time at home was still regimented. And I'd gone to Peckham now and time at home wasn't regimented. Once the house is clean, you can do what you want. So I wasn't used to the idea of independent study. So a free period meant Monopoly. A free period too meant foosball. 
and it wasn't structured and that had its effects where we, we didn't perform as well as we should have in the first year which was the wake-up call that actually we're not immortal and we need to work well there's a lot that you've said that as Pete, the listeners will know if they've listened to some previous episodes there's a lot that you've said that resonates with me uh, in particular the lack of accountability I had when making some very, very important life decisions. Mm. At the age of 16, I was making decisions, and at so are you, that would impact the trajectory of my life. And there was no adult that I was answerable to. Um, just similar to you, I decided the college that I would attend uh, just by chance because one of my friends was was going to visit the college on an open day so I joined him on the bus and <laughs> just, and while he was enrolling I decided that I was going to enroll too that was that was my college experience um and my mum never asked me what college I was going to she just assumed I was going to college she never asked me what subjects I was going to take. She just assumed I was going to pick good subjects. She didn't She didn't have any stake in my decision-making process. And she didn't really want a stake. And that lack of accountability in many instances can lead to children making some very dangerous decisions that will affect their entire life. Yes. And while you were in college, you had your horizons broadened, you were introduced to people who had completely different upbringings to you. Mm. You mentioned that, you know, you had to learn that work was necessary for success. Do you have experiences of how your life and how your upbringing was very different to maybe some of the other people who you sat beside in class? Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. I remember, I, I remember there were some individuals who I think potentially were older at the time who, because of the area that we went to college in, were clearly doing this as some kind of formality. They, it, it wasn't essential whatsoever. They, they, it was going to happen. They were just rebelling against their families a little bit, but they were all going to go off to Warwick or Durham at some point. It's just what the family did. Um, and you, you could tell in terms of the fact that they seemed to have excess amounts of funds. And we were sharing custard creams. And it, it made me realise that we're on the same train, but we've got different tickets. And never to mistake the fact that you have different tickets you're in the same position as this person but that person can very quickly be fast-tracked to a higher station than you if you don't work and that's that's where you developed your current work ethic because this is also a period where you started employment Yes, 
Yeah, that's it. It was essential. I remember I had Mumsy as a woman who took me in at ten burst into my room um, on a Saturday. I think it must have been around twelve o'clock, and I was just lying there doing nothing, nothing at all. And she told me I had a week to get a job, and I believed her. I don't. I, th- I think it's the way she said it that I, I, I realised that actually something crazy is going to happen to me if I do not get this job. <laughs> so I remember asking people around, okay, who can, how can I get, a, I need to get a job. I really need to get a job. Like, this woman's crazy. I need to get a job. Um, and it's me 10 days. Lesson, expectation, urgency, it's crucial. And it was a girlfriend that I was with who worked at Shoe Zone, which became Shoe Fair or vice versa. I was earning a whole three pounds thirty three per hour, which was winning. incredible. I was, I was winning three pounds thirty three, um, and I had to go there every Saturday. I'd set the customers. I had to remember the importance of being polite, um, and these were all acknowledged. But it, it wasn't hard work because I was raised to be polite, and it shocks me how far being polite went in an environment where most people just chose not to be. And I say chose not to be because they all could. I was working in Shoefoot Zone in Camberwell. And then you told me about GFK. And GFK were paying seven pounds. Now, that was a 100% increase (laughs) (laughs) on what I was previously being paid. I was like, yes, let's do this. Um, and I started working at GFK and GFK, I will, I will never forget GFK for all the lessons. GFK was, it was another example of survival of the fittest. It, it was a call centre where the company um, pitched for jobs, secured jobs, and they would have an X amount of people who were available to work on that specific, specific job. When the job was close to the end, they didn't need as many people, so they only kept the ones that they needed. And thus, if you were very good at what you did, i.e., again, being courteous, being polite, having emotional intelligence over the phone to convince people to actually conduct a survey, you were guaranteed consistent work. But if you were not, you were on a zero hours contract and you were not going to get paid. You were not going to get a shift. And I remember instances of the, the, the two of us going to GFK and there's a long line of people getting ready to see our boss at the time. And he's just sending them home home go home go home go home and look at us doing this just go over there wait there and it was such an affirming experience that our work had been acknowledged it took us a while and i think it wasn't until we were team leaders there that we realized our position our stake within that company and it it just emphasized that hard work pays off It, it will lead to more work but it will ensure that you are not treated the same as everyone else well, you touch upon something very briefly, but I think it was incredibly impactful, actually, which is the fact that you were promoted to a team leader within the company in quite a short period of time and was then given responsibility over people who, in some instances, were considerably older than you. Yes. Tell me about what that did for your leadership 
skills, what it did for your communication skills, what it did for your own self-confidence? That was hard. That was 17. 17, I believe. 17, and 18, yeah. Yeah, 17, 18. And we were leading people who easily were in their 40s and 50s on occasions, which was just crazy to think back to. And it reminded me, no, it didn't remind me because I hadn't learned it then. But I learned then that human beings wanted to be treated as human beings. That if you treat people with respect and that there is clarity in your direction, guidance and instruction, there's clarity in the objective, then it will, can minimise offence. Offence can still come. And when it does come, again, maintain that position of objectivity and just not getting in your feelings about it because people will question you people will potentially try to undermine you but as long as you are consistent and I, I had to learn how to be very clear in terms of expectations and in terms of standards and to use strategies whether that be humor banter uh, competition to get people moving and learning personality types of okay for this dude I am going to speak like this because he is from a certain postcode and that's the way he will understand it. However, for this lady, she is from a certain caliber. She has children older than I am and thus she needs to be approached in this way. And that was, link thinking back, a really useful experience just to understand what it's like to, to manage and lead different personality types. And while you were learning these lessons in leadership, you had also made a move from college, further education, to university, higher education. And you were juggling both quite a, a demanding leadership role with a degree. Yes. Tell me about the University of Canterbury, or oh, sorry, the University of Kent in Canterbury. Tell me about the, the experience of arriving in your dorm, dropping your bags and looking around and interacting with, with people there. So I remember, I remember my college teacher, a woman called Nora Holder when I was 17, I remember saying to her, ma'am, I think I want to teach. And she said to me, okay, if you want to really teach, you need to go to University of College London, the Institute of Education. And she actually took me there. And to teach, I would have to get a, a PGC, which was after my degree. So I remember um, ordering the prospectus and just looking through it saying, okay, I'm going to go to university, I'm going to go to University of Kent. And after that, I'm going to go to UCL, IOE. Now, upon getting to Kent, I always had that vision ahead of me that this isn't the end, which helped because when I did get to Kent, I realized that there are some people who saw this degree as the end. There are some people who this was just a motive. This was going to be the greatest three years of their life and they were going to drink themselves to a stupor. Um, but then I, I met other people who I was intimidated by in terms of their experiences, their family background and their intellect. And 
I needed that. I, once again, I needed to see that the world was far bigger than that bedsit I had come from in Peckham. That people had so many other experiences. And I needed to see, and I needed to experience what it was like to be a, a true minority. Um, being a black male, yes, I'm a minority in the UK. Yes, in London, even though it might not feel like it at times. But studying an English and American literature degree in the University of Kent in Canterbury, you are a true minority. I remember in our first lecture, with everyone, I counted three blackheads. In that moment, I realised, okay, if I'm going to survive this, I'm, I'm going to have to get used to this. I remember that insecurity and inferiority didn't completely go away. I remember after my first seminar, saying to my seminar leader, um, I don't think I should really be here. I, I, I think I said to him, I, I'm not a creative writer. I'm, I'm good at analysing, right? I'm not a creative writer. I don't know if this is right for me. He's like, no, 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 you don't, you don't need to be. But that question was, uh, my, was Machiavellian because all I wanted to hear was him say that, no, you're fine. You are meant to be here. I could have said anything. I just needed that encouragement. Because again, I was in a seminar room with maybe 12 people and it was very clear from hearing them speak that they had failed. But not in the way that I had failed. They had failed because they should have gone to Warwick or Durham. Um, but they ended up at the University of Kent. They had failed in that they were very clearly well-to-do, but were here with me. And I failed historically because my first year at college helped me to realise that I'm not immortal and I needed to work harder. And this was my almost safety net. And, and that, upon reflection, again, has, has stayed with me. And it's, it's helped me to feel very comfortable to stand as a minority around people who have, are clearly born into privilege. So listening to this, one of the, one of the emotions or um, ideas that, that comes to mind is around, first of all, rejection. So the emotion I feel is rejection in terms of getting into an environment and not necessarily feeling qualified, mm. feeling like you don't belong and therefore feeling somewhat rejected. Um, but also on top of that, feeling incredibly focused and determined because you know that this actually isn't the goal. This is a stepping stone towards the goal. Yes. How much did you have to lean on a bigger vision, a larger plan to help you get through your university experience? When I was on my own, it reminded me, I was reminded of it. But when I was with people, I, I was, I was swept, up, swept up in the university life. It was fun. It, it was a great experience, um, met wonderful people, learned so much about people, made so many mistakes. But I remember calling you at times and saying, 
What's your five-year plan? And those are the days when I thought of five-year plans. <laughs> um, and one of the reasons I did that was going back to that previous theme of accountability. We'd never had accountability. And even then I realized that imagine what we could have done if we were held accountable by someone, anyone. So I'm going to hold you accountable because I want you to hold me accountable. Okay, what is this for? Mm. Let's not get caught up in the hype. And remember that this step is preparation for another one. And that kept me going back to London, having to work every single weekend, which upon reflection, I, I kind of regret that I had to do that. And it's one of the things which I, I know that my children will not have to do. But it, it did help in that I was able to touch base with people back home in London and see the other life and to balance both in my peripheral vision to decide, okay, what kind of life do I want to make for myself? And to remember that actually the kind of life that I have requires work right now. Yes, I need to do uni Monday to Friday, but I've got to work Saturday and Sunday. I did that for three years. And do you feel like that gave you an advantage when it meant that you finished university and were stepping into the working environment? Oh, well, you were already working, should I say, but working full time. Definitely, because I remember when I trained after my undergrad degree, I was still working weekends. So I'd, I'd continue that pattern. I still to this day, what some people feel is hard work baffles me but I've learned not to show it through my facial expression because I've learned to accept that we are all very different and what you need to carry is not what I need to carry and that is fine and that's growth for me because there was a time when ask men as <laughs> I'm very quick with my tongue and would happily from a position of love try to encourage you to step up and to work harder. But definitely, going into the workplace, I, I saw immediately that I had a higher work ethic than was necessary, than was actually required, which was great because it meant that, okay, starting my career at 21 up onto this point, I've never gone to an interview and not got the job. Um, they've been frequent internals in um, promotions I've just always almost risen to the top and I say this not because I was inherently brilliant because that same individual remembers not being able to say LMNOP and V as a seven-year-old but simply because I worked harder than the people around me there's there's a few more questions I want to ask. Um, and I realise that we've only really just begun mm. the, uh, the, the, the part of the story which a lot of the listeners will be aware of you for. But what I want to talk about now is London Virgin Hair. Yes. So... You'd started 
a full-time job as a teacher and you are making progress as a teacher, as you said, you are working harder than everybody else. But for some reason, you thought that it was necessary to start a business. Yes. Talk me through that thought process. So this is where divine intervention comes in. So it's, it's maybe May, May or June 2015. And a friend of mine, a good friend of mine that I went to university with, he sends me this email, um, including a, a website that he's created. And it's this crazy amalgamation of like, like science and, and, and poetry with like fractions of like a fashion in it. And I remember not opening the email for several days because I'm, I'm, I'm working. And I opened it on a Saturday. Now, I've now graduated to the point where I'm not working on weekends. So I opened this around maybe 10 or 11 a.m. on a Saturday. And something in me sparked immediately. I, I open it and I see it. That the, the first emotion is, oh, well done to my friend. But the second emotion overshadows the first. And it's, you've buried a dream. What are you doing to realize that dream? See, having gone to several different primary schools and moved home on so many different occasions and having absent parents, I remember at the age of six, seven, like saying to my mum, biological mother, in that childish manner, like, one day I'm gonna buy you a house. I'm gonna buy us a house. I'm gonna buy us a house. Like that was the dream, but life had made me realistic. And I'd bought into the average first time buyer's 40. I had worked hard in my career, but I'd learned that, okay, even though I'm doing well and it's 2015 and I've, I've had two promotions and I'm, I'm a, in a really good trajectory right now, and I'm actually doing a master's at the same time to push me even further. I'm nowhere near that early dream of buying my own home. And it led to me doing a crazy search, a search which many people have probably done in the past where you're just Googling, what can I do to earn more funds legally? And I've said in the past that I would have sold buttons or boxer shorts, anything, just something to develop another stream of income. Because I realized that it was strange. The correlation doesn't really make sense hearing out loud, seeing that email and thinking about a house. Because he wasn't doing it for a house. It was, it was a pure expression of his creativity. But it hit me in a way which has changed every aspect of my life since. And I remember just starting to do research, starting to do research, um, going on a holiday with a group of friends um, to Alicante. And even then I was, I was working on like branding and designs and came back for the summer, just continuing to, to work, to research, to, to trial, to test, to build. And then the 1st of October, 2015 we went live. Um, London Virgin Hair, the site was open, people could purchase and I'd done it. I'd, I'd, I'd put everything in place to start and I had so little, 
so little compared to what I actually needed. Um, it's like a, a corner store opening up with only Wrigley's chewing gum for sale. You might as well be closed. It, we, I didn't have what I needed to have, but that will and desire was there. And the first month was, in my view, and a huge failure. Because I think there were seven sales, maybe eight sales, and one of those was for my sister. And the following month was six sales, so it was, it was decreasing. But I just, I just kept on going. It just, it just kept on going, and I, I, I could continue, but I imagine you might have a question. Just a very simple one. Why? Why did you keep on going when you when when you thought you'd failed? I mean, first of all, let me put this into perspective. You absolutely hadn't failed because one sale in your first month of, of business with the investment that you had would have mm. been fantastic. So eight, regardless of where it came from, is impeccable. Mm. But you thought you'd failed. And the following month you did even worse than your first. Why did you continue? See, the happy experience I had in Peckham with that woman who took me in when she only had that bedsit was happy because of the love she showed me. However, I slept on the floor in that bedsit. I'd, I'd, I'd went from her bed to the couch to the floor and that all occurred because throughout my childhood of being quite a nervous child I was one of those kids who wet the bed far too late into their childhood for it to actually be acceptable um, so I, I couldn't sleep on the bed because yeah too much so far destroyed that so I was sleeping on the floor and I, I always had that image in my mind of Knowing that eventually I'm going to have children, there's something strange about human beings where there's this primitive desire or even acceptance that you're going to have a child one day. And I knew I was going to have a child one day. And my thought was, what am I going to give my child? And what I wanted to give my child was always a home. At least their own bed. At the very least, at least somewhere where they could go back to and say that this is mine comfortably and not to ever have to worry about whether where they are is going to change and fluctuate. I remember in those early days under the age of 10 being a very nervous child. And I was one of the reasons why I had to move to that woman who took me in at the age of 10 was that the woman who I'd stayed with previously, again in Peckham, there was an instance where my sister who would try to take me like on odd weekends was dropping me back to this woman. And I had Pokemon cards, and I think we were rushing for some reason, and I, I dropped all these Pokemon cards. Um, and we had to catch a bus, and she, we had to leave the Pokemon cards. And we got onto the bus, and I, I just burst out crying. And I think she realized that the, the, the depth of my tears wasn't those cards. It was I was going back to this woman's house to which she called my mum saying that we've got to move him. Like this is actually having negative effects on him mentally, he cannot continue to stay there. So it was, it was just an amalgamation of so many different childhood memories and experiences which 
maybe had been buried and I thought I was doing well because I was doing well in my job but my, my job isn't it it's my job isn't my legacy my legacy for me then at 2015 was what I was going to leave for my kids and mm. at that point I had nothing to leave them so I, I had to succeed and even when it got hard I, I adopted before my faith I adopted um, a mindset of you've got to be pissed to succeed you've actually got to be pissed off you have to be emotion is powerful emotion drives and there are many of us who unfortunately are sleepwalking through life because there isn't a strong enough emotion pushing us and i guarantee if you are pissed you will get things done and that's what i held on to for a while that i i needed to cultivate almost this belief that it was almost me against the world for my kids who are trying to burst into this room right now um <laughs> to make something happen for them and yeah, i'm i'm definitely going to wrap it up quite soon just because i'm conscious that the children are banging are, are banging at the door they're ready for their for their porridge um but most of the listeners will be aware of the outcome of, of that resilience and the success that you've garnered um both in your uh, uh professional career as well as your entrepreneurial journey the last thing I want to talk about, because we are going to have to do another episode, the last thing that I want to talk about is the purchase of your first home. Now, the reason why this is an interesting milestone is you've just moved from that home. You've just um, uh, purchased a new place, and that's where we're speak. That's where you're speaking to me from right now. Yes. But the first home you purchased is a monumental life milestone and something which you had been planning, as you say, since you were of single digit age. Mm. Tell me the emotions that you went through purchasing that home and how it felt having secured it. So, <laughs> The, the company was off the ground and the company required me to work harder than, that, than I'd ever done before. So my average day would have been me waking up between two and four. If it was poor in terms of sales, maybe two and five to wrap parcels, take them to the post office, um, drop them off at 6am to then go to work to get there for 7am because I need to get there before everyone else to still kill my career. Um, to then head home by 6pm to start the process again. Doing that for two years had detrimental effects on many aspects of my life. Detrimental effects on my health, on my relationships. And the one thing which kept me going was I found faith again. And it was my faith which almost upheld me. And I remember sharing a testimony in church when I actually bought the house because it... It was quicker and harder than I imagined. It happened within three years of starting the business. Essentially two and a half of starting the business. But I remember on the day which I had my offer accepted for the house, an hour later, 
a friend of mine called and said, oh yeah, they're trying to buy a house. And um, yeah, they're just short of a bit of cash. And they asked me if they could lend some money. I was like, how much do you want to borrow? And the figure that they mentioned was my deposit. So to, to be, and I've, I've shared this testimony beforehand, but I always leave out the figure because I think it's, I'm not trying to brag or anything, but I'm going to share the figure to help you understand <laughs> the, the dilemma that I was under. So they wanted £26,500 to secure their house. I'm like, but I've just, I've just almost done it. I've got my offer accepted. How can I give that to you? And it was strange. It was, there was a, there was a piece within that conversation that, that those questions were never posed by me. But I, I believed that actually I could help them here and that I would get it back. And I did, I, I gave them the deposit and they purchased their house and they gave the deposit back to me in time for me to purchase my house. And they'd gone on to buy their second home as well. And it was, I remember when I gave the testimony in church, I remember breaking down afterwards because it was the only testimony which I'd ever wanted to give. It, it was it, there was nothing else I'd wanted. It was, I wanted it so much so that I didn't understand how to even have it. And I, and I say that in that, I remember when I moved in, I literally lived in the, in the living room for a month or so because I just wasn't used to going upstairs. I, I wasn't used to living out of more than one room. This was a three bed house and I was on my own. Like there was, I didn't need that kind of space at that moment in time, but it was just, it was just incredible for me to see one, what could be achieved through God, through hard work, a sheer tenacity and will. And it's, it's a property which I'll keep forever because I have kept a note of everywhere I've lived. And like you, sometimes I drive past those places, but it's important that I take my kids there. It's important that they see where I've come from so that they can create their own milestone of where they are right now with the expectation that you have to push the bar higher. You've got to go further. Now that's not necessarily purely material assets, but it's in, it's in terms of impacts. You've got to do more. This is my story. This is the impact I've created. My grandkids, I'm gonna love them more than I loved you. So I expect you to actually set them up well. But it was, yeah, it was incredible. Um, and I think that's a very poetic story that you've shared from insecurity as a child, multiple homes, multiple family, just looking for stability and going on a an epic journey of both self-discovery, but also professional development in order to, to get to something which many people would have imagined was impossible, securing your first home at the age of, was it 26, 27? 27 at the time, 27 at the time. Um, and listening to that, I feel inspired, even though I've heard segments of that story before. I think it's very powerful to hear it almost in chronological order. Um, 
I just want to leave the listeners with a couple of ideas, a couple of concepts that I think are really powerful in this story. The first is just the importance of stability and love in a child's development. The importance of providing a child with comfort and affirmation in order to make them feel confident, but also allow them to take risks and feel safe in in the process. The importance of holding the people around you, especially the children, accountable for their decisions, because Mm. at very young ages, we're making some very life-changing decisions and the importance of being involved in those decisions, whether they like it or not, because the chances are they won't like it, but providing them with that kind of mentoring and coaching to help them make the best decision possible for themselves. In leadership, um, while working uh, on further education courses and also taking on a leadership role in employment, learning the importance of understanding people as individuals in order to find out how best to motivate them, how to get the best out of people, how to change your communication style in order to ensure that you are achieving success from different people. Now, in our community, we refer to the concept of code switching. In different environments, we speak different dialects and different languages, but the power of that ability allows you to navigate into different spaces almost effortlessly and how important that can be when trying your best to to elevate yourself out of a difficult situation. And the final point I'll mention is just work ethic. Now, the reason why I, I mention work ethic finally is because I think for us, the concept of working hard has now come to an end. It's a given we work hard. Working hard is something which we must do. And because of your upbringing, because of your start in life, your default work setting is other people's hard work. And that is something that's going to live with you for the rest of your life. But you're now at a time when I can hear your babies in the background yeah. Where you can't just work flat out anymore, which means being smart, prioritizing, multitasking. And this requires a completely different set of muscles. It requires almost a need to go back to the drawing board. And it's going to be a, yes. another journey for you to experience. So... Next time we discuss, I'd like to discuss the family that you now have in more detail. But I think I would love to do that episode with your other half. We can do. We can do. Um, We'll speak to the grandparents. They'll love to have their kids because they definitely love them more than they love us. But you are right. Uh, We are now in a stage of what I refer to as a three-point shot. We, we've been slam dunking for a long time and the analogy is we've been running from one end of the court to the other end exerting a lot of energy to acquire one point and compounding that over time but we're now in the position where through accuracy we should be taking three point shots regularly 
exerting less energy and more brain power to have greater impact. So we need to be Iniesta. That's it. Um, most of you will not understand that reference. I apologize. I'm not going to explain <laughs> it. Google it if you need to. Um, final word to you, Afalabi. This has been very therapeutic for me. And there are moments where I almost choked up a little bit. But I'm grateful. And I'm grateful for the people who've actually stayed to listen to it because it's purely a a selfish act on my part just to just to go through this but i really do hope that someone has taken something from it and that you realize that you are a writer in your own story this has been another episode of expensive lessons company directors sharing the experiences the lessons the fruit food for thought that we've developed over years of executing years of failing um, and years of striving for a better life for ourselves and our families really hope that this has encouraged you i really hope it's motivated you and i would love to hear your story so feel free to get in touch feel free to come on and share your story with us because we'd love to hear how your experiences have impacted the person that you are today we hope you have a fantastic week full of challenge and victory and we'd love to hear you join us next week. Take care. Take care all.